Romans 13, verses 1 to 7 is what we're going to cover today. So I have come up with a triangle. We'll see how well this actually ends up working. But um, you have on your sheet there some blanks to fill in, and we'll talk through this. Uh, today, what I would like to do is for the first 20-ish minutes, I would like to uh, lecture, okay? And then for the last half or a little more of the class, would like for us to discuss all sorts of application. That's my, that's my desire. As we go through this, you'll probably have lots of questions that pop up in your mind or lots of things you want to say. Just jot them down, and from the second half of the class, we'll have time to, to go through that, okay? But today we'll be discussing the obligations, violations, and duties of this interesting relationship. God, government, and the rest of us. That's what it should say instead of us. The rest of us, right? Uh, so as we get started here, let's consider something very basic. God is Lord over all, right? There is a distinction between the Creator and all of His creation, whether we're talking about each one of us individually, whether we're talking about the church, whether we're talking about government, no matter what we're talking about. There is a distinction in being between God and creation. God is eternal Creator. God had no Creator. Each one of us has God as our Creator. We are dependent on God. God is the only independent so at a very basic level, as we approach this conversation today, we can say this, right? There's a distinction between God and then government, which is made up of us, right? There's creator-creation distinction. God has established authority, all authority, in the earth. This actually comes up in our text today. Uh, we looked at it last week. But also it comes up in other places, like in John 19.11, where Jesus is speaking to Pilate. You would have no authority if it were not given to you from above. Tyler led us through that passage last week. God has created all authority. And of course, just generally speaking, God has created all of us. It is the Lord who has made us and not we ourselves. There is a creator-creation distinction. Okay, Whether we're talking about government or the rest of us, there's a distinction. Because of that distinction, we have an obligation because we are not God, we are obligated to God, aren't we? We have an obligation toward God as His creatures made His image. If you look at Deuteronomy 10, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Deuteronomy 10, 12, it talks about, What has the Lord your God required of you but to love Him, to serve Him, to walk with Him? Okay, it gives you five items, actually, and this is speaking to Israel in particular. But this is the great duty of man in general. What, what does man owe to God? Well, our very lives. He has given us life, and we owe it to God to give our lives to Him, to live for God. That as we go about living this life, we're obligated to God to worship Him in all that we do. We have no higher authority, therefore we have no greater allegiance this is an interesting passage, this Hebrews 6 passage. It talks about God making promises. And when God makes promises, He swears by Himself, it says, because He can swear by no higher name. <laughs> there is no higher name than God. And we, of course, recognize that, don't we? We have no greater allegiance in life than our Creator. No greater allegiance. So important to recognize that. We have an obligation toward God. Now, the government also has obligation toward God. It's not just that we individually 
are obligated to live for God, but whole governments have an obligation toward God. And this is where the conversation starts getting a little tricky. But we can glean from Scripture, Psalm 2, kings should do homage to the Son of God to avoid His wrath. Psalm 2 speaks of a day when the Son of God is going to shatter the kings of the earth. He's going to rule over the kings of the earth. And so, your translation might say, kiss the Son, S-O-N, or do homage to the Son. They are called to, in the here and now, recognize that Jesus is the King of kings. The kings of the earth are to honor the King. We would never say they're not supposed to, right? (laughs) Now, that creates some interesting conversations, but we'll get to those later. As a general principle, the kings should honor the king of kings. They should kiss the son, do homage to the son. Upon his return, of course, this is Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, he will be ruling the nations with a rod of iron. His kingship over all earthly kings will be expressly manifested on the earth when he returns. There will be no doubt that he's the king of kings. They will have no other option but to obey the son of God at that point. He will bring all the earthly kings into ultimate obedience as he rules from Jerusalem, reigns from Jerusalem. So in the here and now, there's a general principle of governments are to recognize the king of kings. There are many kings, but there's only one capital K king. And they're to recognize that. Now we get into what's our obligation to the government. We've discussed our obligation to God, the government's obligation to God in very general terms. But what's our obligation to the government? Now I want us to read Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. So would someone go ahead and read that for us, and then I'll discuss a few principles from there. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Go ahead, Sam. Every person is to be in subject, subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to the very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Very good. I have from these seven verses eight aspects of our obligation toward government. Okay, number one, we see it in verse one. All people are to submit to government. This is very basic, and again, Tyler talked through this in detail last week, but just as a very basic observation... We are obligated to submit to government. The citizens of a government are obligated to submit to that government. Secondly, this is in verse 2, resisting government is resisting God's design. There's strong language here in verse 2. 
Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. That is pretty strong language. Authority and particularly governmental authority has been ordained by God and to resist such a concept is to resist the ordinance of God, to resist God himself. Opposing government results in condemnation. That's also in verse 2. They who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Again, that's very strong language. Very, very strong language. Now, uh, when we're speaking of condemnation here, does this mean damnation? I don't think that's... uh, Those two concepts are necessarily equal in Paul's view here. He's not saying, this is how you go to hell. You break the speed limit. I don't think that's what he's saying, okay? Um, But if we are opposing God's authority through government, we can't be on good terms with God, right? If we're opposed to God's ordained authority, how can you say you're on good terms with God? That's the general idea. Now, again, you have lots of thoughts and questions. Jot them down. Second half of the class, okay? So, So keep those thoughts in your head for the moment. Government incites either fear or peace in us. Our response toward government is to be either fear or peace. Verses 3 and 4 talk about this. Do you want to not be afraid of the government? Well, Paul gives you an idea as to how you can not be afraid. They bear the sword not in vain. So do good and you'll have praise from the same. And submitting to government is for our good. We are obligated to see government in our lives as a good thing. It says very plainly in verse 4, it, the government, is a minister of God to you for good. We are so naturally opposed to such a notion, aren't we? (laughs) But read the black words on the white page here, or your tablet or your phone, whatever you're using. Verse 4, it, the government, is a minister of God to you for good. Three more things about our obligation to government. Submitting to government impacts our conscience. Verse 5. We, it says in verse 5 here, um, it's necessary to be in subjection, to submit to government, not just because they might exercise wrath toward you, but also for conscience's sake. And there's, there are a lot of ways that that can be interpreted, but as a general principle, we can say it is a conscience matter in the sense that submitting or resisting Government impacts your conscience. Government is owed taxes, customs, fear, and honor. This is probably the clearest, plainest, most applicable takeaway. It's from the end of the passage. We are to render to the government taxes, customs, or you could even say obedience, fear, and honor. And one last thing about our obligation toward the government The government is devoted to avenging evil behavior among its constituents. And so we are to, and this is for a variety of reasons, not just because of this passage, we are to avoid evil behavior. We are to submit to good law. We are to bring ourselves into submission under that which promotes righteousness. Because the government is devoted to avenging evil behavior. Therefore, we must respect them. Because that is their role, We not only submit, but we also respect them because that's what God has given them to us for. So a big summary statement about our obligation toward the government. Our baseline disposition toward government should not be 
Prove that you are worthy of taxes, obedience, fear, and honor. Instead, we recognize that God has said that they are worthy of these things and that it is necessary for us to be in subjection. Our default disposition toward the government is not prove yourself worthy of these things. We have here, in verses 6 and 7, the call to render to the government what is due them. Tax, custom, fear, honor. And this, of course, harkens back to Jesus' response about paying taxes. Whose face is on here? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay? Was Caesar a great guy? Of course not. Was, was Caesar a Christ follower? Was he a disciple of Christ? No. Would we say, just generally speaking, he was a great guy? No, no, we wouldn't. But he is due certain things, okay? Baseline disposition. All right. Government also has an obligation toward us. It's not just that we have an obligation toward government, but the government has an obligation toward us. So here's the other side of the coin. I'll give you four aspects. Number one, it's an extension of God's authority. It is an extension of the authority of God. Verses 1 and 2 make this very clear. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. That means that authority is extending from God. And those which exist are established by God. So governments are to recognize that, aren't they? <laughs> they are to recognize where their authority comes from. That's that conversation between Jesus and Pilate. They're to recognize that their authority comes to them from God. And do you think that would affect the way that they rule? Well, yeah, it would if, if they recognized that God gives them their authority. Okay? So they are obligated to us to rule well. It is only to punish evil while praising good. That's an obligation the government has toward its people. Among the people, only punishing evil and praising good. And we have seen quite the inverse of this on many occasions, but we've also seen this in our history. In fact, you can still see this now. Murder is punishable, isn't it? Robbing people is punishable, isn't it? We have courts, we have a system where people can go and be tried and be punished for evil acts. That's good. The problem is that, that word only there. Because there are also good acts that have been punished lately. You think of government overreach, government mandates that have overextended into punishing that which is good. Namely, gathering for Sunday worship or things of that nature. And we know, of course, there are governments around the world that punish you for just having a Bible, for just being a Christian. Okay, that's not good. It is God's servants to accomplish his purposes. That goes with the first one. And it is to receive taxes, obedience, fear, and honor. And it should do it well. It should not abuse the taxes, obedience, fear, and honor. That's probably what I should have typed out. It is to receive well. It is to not abuse the rendering of the constituents, taxes, obedience, fear, and honor. Those things are not to be abused among the people. Okay? Governments are expected by God to rule well and to rule rightly. Or they're responsible to God for ruling well and ruling rightly. So then a big summary statement for the government's obligation toward us. 
The government protects us and is used by God to incite fear so as to hinder sinful behavior in society. Not in the church, that's an important distinction. These authorities are responsible to know what is good and evil and to rule accordingly. Governments being responsible to know what is good and what is evil and to rule accordingly. Again, we've seen a lot of failure of this, but we've also seen a lot of good from that. We have seen governments, especially on a more local level, rule according to conscience and generally speaking, promote good and seek to hinder evil. Okay? So we don't want to be just doom and gloom as we talk about this. We want to consider also the good examples of this. Now notice that parenthetical phrase, they're to hinder sinful behavior in society, not in the church. The church has its own disciplinary process, doesn't it? Jesus gave the church its own disciplinary process. However, there are times when the church does need to call on the authorities. And that's another one of those questions for the second half of the class if you want to go down that road. But the government is not to uh, keep the church holy. Okay, That's the general idea. The church is to be self-governed. God has made, designed the church to be self-governed. Okay? All right, a few more things before we get into the, uh, the application. We've been talking about these obligations. There's a mutual obligation down here. But government and the rest of us have obligation to, toward God as his creatures. But the question arises, well, what happens when one of those obligations is violated? What happens when someone sins against someone else or ultimately sins against God? First, we'll consider what happens when we break the government's laws. What happens when we violate the government's authority? We know that there's a ramification most of the time. Speeding is a, is a great example, right? Uh, some of you have gotten speeding tickets in recent history, I'm sure. I haven't, but some of you have. <laughs> and we know that if we break the government's laws, there's a ramification that exists. Okay, That's just a, a very simple example. But let's also remember that when we resist government, we're resisting God. Okay? There's a, there's a connection that Paul is giving in Romans 13 from the very beginning when he says there is no authority except from God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Okay? Generally speaking, now we're going to get into some other examples, but generally speaking, you're violating the government's laws you're violating your obligation toward God as well. If you're violating your obligation toward government, you're violating your obligation toward God. Opposing authority or otherwise sinning against society results in punishment. The authority does not bear the sword in vain. That's why they're there. They're there as ministers of God, as representatives of what is good, and they are there to punish what is wrong, what is a violation. So, we're, again, we're speaking in real general terms, but I think you can, you can grasp that. You're tracking with me, okay? Now, what about when the government fails? This is where it gets even trickier. What about when the government abuses its people or just outright rejects God and they're violating their constituents and what is good in the sight of God at the same time? How do we respond to that? What happens at that point? And this is a... Uh, this is where probably a lot of our questions come from. Do we continue to submit to government even when they are being wicked, objectively wrong? How far do we take our submission to government? That's the question. 
Well, when governments fail to honor God and their authority, not taking him into account, he will eventually hand them over to their evil. This is very clear in Scripture. Romans 1 is a great example as authorities in a culture, as representatives of a culture or society continue to run from God and they plunge themselves into every evil thing. It says three different times in Romans 1, God hands people over to their sin. And we have seen in world history, entire societies crumble. Entire nations crumble. Entire empires fall apart. We've seen that in history. When governments fail to honor God, He will eventually hand them over to their evil. And what happens when they violate one of God's commands or when they, when they just fail to acknowledge God, that does affect our relationship with the government too. When they fail to honor God rightly, that does affect our relationship. A very basic example, when governments disobey God, the church should never join them in it. So when the governments say, no gospel, no gospel in this area, if you are living in this land, you can't talk about Jesus, no talking about Jesus, we say, you are now violating what God has called good, and we are, that affects our relationship now. <laughs> We are no longer in submission to you, but we will rather obey God. Because remember, all the way back to the beginning, we have no higher allegiance than God himself, do we? He is our highest allegiance. And so if God has called us to do something, and the government says, no, you cannot, we say, sorry, Charlie, we're doing it. You can arrest us, you can kill us, you can do whatever you want, but God's going to build his church through his people following his command. And we obey God rather than man. Okay. Very basic example. The church is still obligated, however, to submit to the government aside from such sinful acts. So that, that Acts 4 reference that I gave you where Peter said, you know, we're going to obey God rather than man. He goes on to write in his epistle, honor the king, submit to every earthly institution. So it's not like that if they say don't preach the gospel, that wipes out all obligations that we ever have toward them ever. We are still obligated to obey, to submit to them, in, aside from such sinful acts. Okay? We, we still have an obligation to them even when they fail to uphold their duty. So, this is what I gave you at the beginning. There's a mutual obligation between government and the rest of us. Government has an obligation to God. We have an obligation to God based on the creator-creation distinction. A few summary statements before we get into the application. Number one, Christ is the head of the church. The state is not an authority over the house of God. Okay? Caesar is not Caesar of the church. President Joe Biden is not president of the church. Okay? Jesus is the head of the church, the only head of the church. He's the chief shepherd. No one else is the head of the church but Christ alone. Okay? We have to... Grasp these basic principles that will help us wrestle through some application questions. Number two, God delivers final justice, even the punishment of evil rulers and authorities. Anybody know that Acts 12, 23 reference on the topic of God punishing evil rulers? It's a really cool story. That's story. Yes. You want to share that? He took, he took the honor from the people that God do belong to him and 
Herod accepted that honor because they were calling him God. God struck him. That's the ugly event. What specific detail does it give us about when he died? Worms. Ah, he was eaten by worms. Wow. Well, God is the one who del- delivers that ultimate justice. I could have quoted Romans 12 here too, not just Acts Romans. Because God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. All right? So that's an important element to hold on to. Third, Paul's thoughts here are for all people and they are general. It's not some sort of full-blown treatise. That's from uh, Tom Schreiner's commentary. He says, this is not some full-blown treatise. We can't go to Romans 13 and look at these seven verses and say, this gives us everything that we need to know about every situation that we ever encounter with any government anywhere at any time. You won't be able to do it. You won't be able to do it from Romans 13. However, we do have, of course, general principles that guide us in our thinking on how we have a relationship with our government. And fourth, finally... Christians should be people who lead quiet lives, obey authority, and mind our own business. I love that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. It always reminds me of my grandpa, Howard, that he lived a life very much like that. He had his own land. He sought to be an upright, good citizen. He loved the Lord. He wanted to mind his own business. That is, that is actually a command for the church in 1 Thessalonians 4. To work with your hands, lead quiet lives, mind your own affairs. That's a general principle for the church, for Christians. That is what they are called to do. Okay? Now, we have 30 minutes left. And we could chase a squirrel around a football stadium right now and try to answer every single question that exists in the room. Uh, or we could not now you say perfect Uh, and so I'm going to guide us through some application and I think we'll hit most of the the questions or thoughts that you might have and we're going to have to keep this at a relatively decent clip we're not going to sit here forever and pontificate about every single possible angle for every single issue Okay? so it's a bit of a challenge but I believe in us I think we can do it here we go as we think through application questions. Now, here's the time that's open to you guys. I'm asking the question and you guys are answering. Is there any limit to the authorities God has established? Romans 13, again, the very beginning of the passage, it's quite clear. There is no authority except from God. And it goes on to say that, uh, verse 2, whoever resists authority is opposed the ordinance of God. The authorities that exist, exist because of God. So is there any limits to the authorities that God has established in the world? And think, go all the way to the extreme. Think of the worst, most famous authorities that have existed. Did God establish them too? What do you think? Yeah, they abandoned him. They rejected him. Okay, Walker says yes, but they rejected him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could read um, the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, the prophet, is asking God in Israel, why is this happening to us? All these people are beating up on us. God's using wicked nations for his purposes. Yeah. 
And they are punished still at the end of whatever they did. They are punished for God's glory. He is the one who ends up punishing them. Where's Germany? Germany now. Okay. It's still unsuperpowered. It's very good. So just because God has established all authority, that doesn't mean all that they do then is godly or God-ordained, right? Obviously, I think we could all agree with that. As Walker said just simply, they reject God. And they will be punished for rejecting God. And yet, they still have their place of authority from God himself, don't they? In John 19, 11, it said, Jesus says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. You missed that part from the beginning of the class. Oh. <laughs> but no, it's exactly right. That's good. Well, yeah, all authority is, is given. All the authority that the government has is given yes. to them by God, whether they use it or abuse it correctly. Even the one who gave the Son of Man over to be crucified, God establishes authority. And can you think of a greater sin than that? There you go. Okay. Next, does God only establish certain types of government bodies? Whether that's a democracy or going back to what Israel was to be, a theocratic nation. Does God only establish certain types or does God only wish for certain types of government bodies? Communist. Yeah, communist, socialist, uh, pure democracy, democratic republic, on and on it goes, monarchy. Pragmatically, some of them work better, but that doesn't mean that they don't have greater or lesser authority. Or, or that one of them is godly and the others are not. Right. It's the people who say that democracy is was um, our democracy was inspired. Ignore the fact that it's still government of the people by the fallen people or the fallen people. So it ends up being a pretty bad mess in the end. Only the memory of God's rules minimizes the evil thereof. Yeah, they're all the same because God's fallen they're all governments ruled by managed by fallen people. And all governments to greater or lesser extent are an expression of the people over which they rule at, so, at some level. Even the fiefdoms in medieval Europe, the serfs had to serve their lords. They quoted God as saying this was their authority. But every government, every government that's existed has, <clears throat> except for one that I can think of has been a uh, has been an extension of the people. Yep. What about the way that God speaks so harshly of monarchies in the Old Testament? Israel said they wanted a king. What did God say to that? Don't you don't want a king? He might take up to ten percent of your income. <laughs> He said, "You want it, you got it." Well, he, so it seems like he's, implications thereof. So it seems like he thinks less of a monarchy than he does of other sorts of government. But I was specific to Israel because he 
me specifically, all of them alone, not everybody else. Ah, so we need to consider the context of those statements then, that they were delivered to a certain people at a certain time for their certain blessing. That's why we've got to pay attention to Romans and Peter, because they wrote in a context that is significant to us. And kind of the flip side of that is, uh, you know, God speaks bad about monarchies in the Old Testament, but the flip side is... Um, Jesus is a monarch, right? He's the king. <laughs> uh, and so, on the other hand, God really likes monarchies, right? And so we need, to, we need to be careful when we start talking about types of governments and how far we go with that. He's a divine monarch. There's a difference. There is. The creator-creation distinction, perhaps. Yeah, but correct. So, so David's kingship as a, as a scale... And he's, of course, judge, and he calls us to have earthly judges, so, okay. All right. These are the only two application questions from the perspective of God. Now, let's, two application questions from the perspective of or the aspect of government in this triangulation I presented to you. Which level or levels of government does Paul have in view as he speaks of submitting to the government? There are, of course, a variety of levels of government that we experience in our lives. Lots of levels. Too many levels. <laughs> well, we just got done saying that God didn't set up one specific type, I guess, right? So I don't know if we can say too many. But it sure, sure feels like too many. What levels are in view in Romans 13? Is it all the way down to your city council board members? Yes. And all the way up to the chief executive? Yes. And everything in between? Any nays? <laughs> okay, all right, wow. That was pretty simple, all right. Actually, it's not sad for us because we're just as fallen as Well, I suspect the, uh, the next question is going to be a little more difficult to answer. By which law are governing authorities to rule? It's easy. God's. Really? Yes. <laughs> so why are your children still alive? This one? <laughs> All of them. <laughs> Disobedient children are to be stoned at the gate. Yeah. <laughs> is that really what we want? Without sin is the one Okay. <laughs> so it's a conglomeration of, of laws and taking the edge off of laws. Jesus, Jesus never rescinded God's justice. Correct. Ever. ever. It's impossible for that to happen. Impossible. So the only question of right and wrong, good and bad, evil, not evil, is God's law. God is the one that determines what is right and wrong. Governments are required to show him honor. Okay, but that doesn't answer the question. How? Walker? I think the governments base their laws off of God's law. So, like, there's a general kind of rule. So, some of his law. Yeah. Okay. Like, murdering is bad, stealing is bad. Who would, yeah, who would want to live in a society where those things were allowed, right? Yeah, exactly. Lizzie? I think, I think, um, Um, I I guess like 
God puts like, I mean, morality is based off God's law. And so even though people aren't saved, they still are grown with the mentality of morality of God's law so that those applications uh, go forth on like their law making and things like that because of the consciousness. So it should be, um, you think it should be a law then based on the God-given morality and the law that all the people in the nation are to observe the Sabbath day because that's the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Um, uh, <laughs> Andy? Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath yes. was created for man, not man yes. for the Sabbath. Good. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But we put these Ten Commandment monuments outside of courthouses and stuff, don't we? The Decalogue is the basis of American constitutional law, yes. I go back to Romans 2, 14, 15. For when the Gentiles are down, have the law, do instinctively the things of the law. These, not having a law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately, accusing or else defending them. Okay, so make, I think that's extremely relevant. Now bridge it to our conversation here. That um, a lot of the, uh, all the moral lies put in our hearts when we're knit in our mother's womb. I mean, we come out knowing murder is bad um, and stealing and those things, although we're inclined to do them in certain aspects of our lives. Um, but there's this general understanding of those basic, basic things of life that are good versus bad. So conscience plays a role. God-given conscience that all people have. What about those whose seared consciences, (laughs) who have seared consciences, when they get in places of authority? Yes, Andrew? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Romans 1. Romans 1. All roads lead to Romans 1. Romans 1. Yeah. People know the law. They know it in their heart. They know they know what is right. They know what is wrong. And yet, they, and even we as Christians, suppress that truth. We, we know what is right. Yep. We know what is wrong. And we suppress that truth because of our own sin that sits inside of our own heart. And so the difficulty is, when you have a bunch of people in governmental authority who are unregenerate, therefore suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, how are they expected to rule? According to God's law. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Okay. Right and wrong. But all of the law. Like I said. (laughs) All of the law. Well, you have some difficult things to wrestle with. Whether you say there's a natural law that they rule by in their conscience, or they go to the first five books of the Bible and they implement the law given to Israel in their society down to a T, uh, you have some difficult things to wrestle through. I think most of us end up with some sort of a mixture here, don't we? <laughs> Saying, well, they need to take this from God's revelation to us, and these things not so much because we're not Israel, and it becomes very difficult. I mean, should we have cities of refuge? Should we do the whole thing? Should we go through and do the entire thing um, in America? 
Uh, we're not going to dwell on this question any longer, but you're going to need to wrestle with that, okay? That's a tough one. And I'm not here to say there's a perfect, clear-cut answer. Well, we can see, though, that God never expected or anyone about doing those specific things. Yes, and we'll come back around to that, that point here in a moment. Where does the government's jurisdiction end? Here's another difficult question. Are they allowed to say, you cannot gather as a church in this building over a certain number of people? Of course, we saw this with COVID. But we also have this placard that's been up in this building ever since we built it that says maximum occupancy 299. <laughs> Are they allowed to do that? Are they allowed to do that during COVID? And you start going down the line. Are they allowed to mandate vaccines? Are they allowed to implement any type of taxes at any level? 100% income tax. Does their jurisdiction allow for them to do that? The draft for the military, the fire codes that I mentioned, the FCC regulating communication. Remember prohibition, not allowing people to buy alcohol? What about prohibition of other substances? Where does their jurisdiction end? Firearms. Yeah, firearms. What you can have, what you can't have, where you can have it, where you can't have it. Walker. Um, I feel like I feel like they shouldn't be able to say that we can completely not do those things. They should implement them, but not force them. <laughs> <laughs> You've arrived at the tension of the discussion. Yes. That's his view on parenting too. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> That's tough. That's a tough one. James. Yeah, I think the government's role ultimately is to protect the people from anything, any cause. So if if they start infringing to the point that it causes damage, that's the barrier. Or the where it, their jurisdiction starts and ends. But we all have different definitions of what damage is, right? Right. And that's where it's here the fire code. Yeah. They're saying this building can only house so many people. If a fire would break out, so many people would be able to get out of this exit, that exit, whatever. So it's to protect the group of people from further damage. But there is, all of that is defined in gray. It is, because what if their standards for churches on fire codes suddenly become stricter? And now the maximum occupancy instead of 299 for this building becomes 50. They get to set the standard. That right? same argument goes for the vaccines. Mm -hmm. They're saying they're trying to protect everyone. And it's just going to make us all sick. So, so that's where, I hate to do this, but I mean, I, the visual I think helps. So when we go back to these violations, right here, the, our relationship with government does get affected when they violate their jurisdiction. When they go beyond their boundaries, our relationship does get affected. The difficulty is, where exactly is the boundary? Because we can say for sure, government setting up a bunch of internment camps and killing a bunch of Jews, that crosses a line. Right? Putting people in furnaces clearly crosses a line. But when we say that extreme example and we start walking back and trying to find where the line is, it's very, very difficult. And we're not all going to agree. 
And that's okay. And we can sharpen each other on that, but um, it is a very, very difficult thing to think through. Well, another thing to think about, um, a paraphrased quote from one of the founders is that the Constitution was written to a moral and godly people. Yeah, John Adams, I think, said that. Yeah, so initially, like, with specifically with America, it was, it was written to a people, for a people that already had the moral conscience on their hearts. So in some ways, the government has to, let, has to leave it to each individual to follow their conscience as well. And there has to be that level of trust between the two parties. A baseline morality agreed upon by a society certainly makes things more functional. Right? If you have a society that is utterly pagan and you have everybody disagreeing on what is right, what is wrong, which direction's up, which direction's down, I mean, crying out loud, we're there. What is it? And then trying to restrain that entire society by issuing some sort of law based on some sort of morality, only a, a slice of the pie is going to agree with that. So, yeah, I mean, having a, an agreed upon morality is, is certainly helpful. We got to go quickly, Lizzie then Dean. Okay, so um, I think those things obviously have like the gathering and things that have affected um, the church of how it is now. But I don't see like in in the beginning when the church was starting out, it was very small and it was like small groups and things like that. So with a big church like let's say this or like a mega church. Um, We're not. <laughs> That's news to me. <laughs> so it pushes people out, right? It scatters them, um, and I think it sh- like I think that is like a way to. I don't see the problem of like if it pushes us so far back to how the church was in the beginning. Like I don't see like a problem with it. Uh, like us gathering in, in big groups, like yeah, that's really great. But I mean, it wasn't like that in the beginning. Yeah. Going any further than that, then that would be really bad. But. Yeah. In some ways, it makes us be more biblical as far as matching the narrative of the Book of Acts, right? If we are persecuted to the point of meeting in homes yeah. under threat of persecution, um, in that sense, we are we are matching more of what we read about in the Bible. It wasn't until a couple hundred years after Christ died. When Christians were allowed to start to have their own buildings, when they stopped being persecuted. And so, yeah. But, but I enjoy having a building. I enjoy not being persecuted. It's our freedom to do that. And um, when the government starts pushing on that particular issue, how much do we push back? That's the question. That's hard we to have brothers and sisters right now that are in that yes. exact situation yes. around the world. Dean. Uh, talking about the Constitution, I've heard a lot of chat about we should be submitting to the Constitution, not the ruling government currently, because they're not submitting to the Constitution. And so that draws more lines and divides more people into yes. what we should be doing, what we should be obeying. So, yeah, are we a monarchy with the Constitution as the king, essentially, or are we a, uh, a government that is supposed to rule by the Constitution, and if they violate it, then that affects our relationship with the government to where we don't have to obey and then, there, of course, there are lots of issues that it's hard to pinpoint exactly by the Constitution. Um, 
but there are lots of clear-cut cases where the government's violating. So yes, that is that gets very complicated. Let's finish off with. Can I say something real fast? You may. I heard John MacArthur say that if they took away religious freedom, he'd actually be in favor of that because you can't kill Christ's church and the remnant. So taking away the freedom to have every other religion, you know. Yeah, that's thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would make it for an interesting time in America, that's for sure. May we only disobey government when it calls for us to disobey God. Yeah. So this is actually kind of touching on what, what Dean was just bringing up. If they're not calling for us to disobey God, yet they're disobeying the Constitution, can we disobey them? They're not making us sin, but we're recognizing they're not following the, the document they're supposed to be following. So are we free to disobey? Or can we only disobey if they're calling us to sin? So we have, our country gives us the legal right to fight against our government when they step out of line, when they're not following their guidelines. Yes, churches have sued states, things of that nature, yeah. And that's disobeying. But it's going through a legal action to do it. John MacArthur. Yeah, MacArthur's fight with California. Yeah. There was uh, there been some other pretty notable ones too. Calvary Chapel in Nevada is another big one. Um, this gets into the kind of questions like they're using our tax dollars for unrighteous purposes. Why should we pay taxes? They're not calling you to do anything that's sinful, but now you're complicit, you feel, in their evil acts. Gets into those kind of conversations. Those are difficult. Those are difficult ones. Is it ever proper for us to resist government with lethal force? Only if you're willing to pay the price. Hmm. Yeah, according to the Constitution, yes. It, I will say this. I have a hard time believing we'll ever get here as a nation again. After what we just went through with everything with COVID, our founding fathers, I think, would have been up in arms. Uh, remember what, what they were killing people over back then? E-taxation. <laughs> Taxation, without representation, those sorts of things. Uh, I think we've, we've kind of gotten past the point as a nation where we're going to do this, to me. Uh, but it does sort of beg the question, when do you threaten the government with lethal force? That's a difficult one. Again, we're not here to uh, examine all sides and come to a conclusion. I just want you to think about it. Is it the goal of the church to turn governments Christian? Depends on your eschatology. Depends on your eschatology. Yes, exactly. But no. <laughs> uh, it, the Great Commission is not for us to go out and turn governments Christian. You don't see it in the teachings of the Bible. You don't see it in the narratives of the Bible that describe what the apostles were doing. You don't see it. We're not called to do it. It's not part of our scope. Should Christians influence government? Absolutely. Should Christians be involved? Yes. Should we be Amish? <laughs> no. Okay, I gave you a no answer. Uh, no. So we recognize there is a, a, a distinction of spheres between the church and the government. And the church isn't to gobble up the government and to join the state and the church and to make them one. That's not the goal of the church. 
However, at the same time, they're not so separate that we go live in our own communities and pretend like nothing else exists. Joe. Back to proper Jesus government. Isn't it in the Constitution that the gun laws were made to well, yeah, the reason why the Second Amendment exists, it was coming right off the heels, of course, of their own picking up arms against their government. So, yeah, that was. But does that make it right? The Constitution is not an inspired text. So is the Constitution wrong in saying that you can do that? That's the question. We won't get into that. Um, <laughs> what place does fear have in the way we relate to government? This comes directly from chapter 13. So let's finish by looking at the text. Look at verses 3 to 5. What role does fear play? What place does fear have in the way that we relate to the government? You have to have a respect for the government no matter what and, and be in a position of submission as much as possible until we feel like those moral aspects have been violated. Um, and then handling those... It, we still need to approach it in, in fear, um, as we would approach God in humble humility and do the best that we can to resolve things without going to violence mm -hmm. or sin. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. That includes the government. Our attitude towards the sovereignty of God, the Understanding of the sovereignty of God has to be the first ingredient in any, any approach to that. And the other is to examine our own hearts. What is our motive for wanting something the way it is? benefit myself? Is it the benefit of bigger things? <laughs> text says that if you do it right, should have no fear. Good. But then if you do something, if you disobey, then you should have fear because yes. they're the sword of God. So fear actually does play a pretty big role in restraining sin in the culture, doesn't it? And it's presented here as that's the way it's supposed to be. The government is there bearing the sword to incite fear, to cause restraint in the society. There is an, an element where the law, whether it's, uh, we're talking about Israel and the Old Testament law, or all the different societies today that have all these different laws, where even among unregenerate people, sin is restrained because of their fear of the government. God's authority that he's established in that culture is effectively restraining sin. That's a pretty important element as we consider sociological issues. Andy, then Jerry. So, 30,000 foot view. When you have a society and a government that is not practically maintaining the rule of law, um, it becomes very wicked because people basically run rampant. Yep. Yeah, without the rule of law, you know, I've been to places in Mexico, my daughter's been down to uh, Oak Park near, near uh, Ensenada many, many times. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. But the roads have improved drastically over the years as she's been going there, and the reason the roads have improved is because the cartels 
have been paying money to have those roads paved. They need better roads in order to import their efficient drug traffic. Their products, yeah. exactly. So, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that we do want to maintain law. Absolutely, we want we want rule of law. We want law enforcement. What the challenge is is the difference between law enforcement that is just versus law enforcement that is unjust or corrupt. That's that's the yeah. key. Yeah. And we're all sinful people. Romans one. So it makes it a challenge. When will we finally have a perfectly just government? When our king returns. There you go. Amen. Amen. That's it. Jerry. Probably isn't worth the time, but But you're gonna say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay, go ahead. Well, it's just when you were mentioning about the fear of punishment is to be a motivation. It's interesting to me because way back when I was a kid, my sister-in-law is a sociologist and she was primarily in the prisons. Um, First thing they come up with is that punishment doesn't doesn't curb its curb the what's the word? Not sin, but yeah, law breaking. It just it, it it's not effective. It's the same thing. Capital punishment doesn't. Uh, it's just amazing how quick one person wants to defend. Yes. Yep. Let's get punishment out of the way so that way we can do what we want to do. All right. Let's pray. Thanks for hanging in there. Good class. Good job. Father, we thank you so much for life and breath and every good thing. We desperately need wisdom in this life and how to go about honoring you in our relationships with the world around us. And we ask that you give us great insight from your word and great insight from one another as we counsel one another about what to do, how to do it, that we would serve you well with this life you've given us. Bless our time together as we move into our corporate worship now uh, for your glory. Amen. Amen.